It's July 6th, 2009, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. A couple of reminders, I'll be in Seattle the end of this month as part of the Better Photo Photographic Summit. There are still spaces available for the seminars on Saturday and the uh, photo walk on Sunday. So if you're in the area, please consider signing up and saying hello. There'll be a link on the blog or visit the betterphoto.com website. I'm also in the process of making some changes to my blog at lafotoboy.blogspot.com, and I'm going to be occasionally posting essays on my journey as a photographer, so check it out when you have the chance. Today's guest is Olympus Visionary and Day. Now, when it comes to some photographers, there can be a huge gap between the professional and personal work, particularly when the camera is turned on their own family members. What I like about Anne's work is that the intimacy that exists in her personal work extends itself to her professional work. She has a wonderful sense of light and color that informs all of her images. Whether And whether you're a professional or an amateur, looking at her images really inspires you to bring up your A-game, even when making images of your own family. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Anne Day. Well, Anne, welcome to the Candid Frame. It's a it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, thank you. Um, I always like starting off with asking people how they discovered photography. So, what was what's the story with you? How did you discover photography and and discover that it was a passion for you? Well, I really like to draw and paint, and by the time I was a teenager, I kind of realized I didn't have enough patience, and when <laughs> The first time I went in the dark room, I said, "Hey, that's this is really great. You get the you get the thing right up there, floating up there in the de- in the deck tall." Um, you know, the first time I saw a, a print come up, it was just so exciting. Um, but the, really, when I first discovered photography, I was younger, and I took a, a roll of film on my Kodak Instamatic 126 with those little cube. You remember the flash cubes? You mm-hmm. probably oh yeah, no, I remember those. Um, but anyway, I took um, an entire roll of film of water because it really looked beautiful to me. And then when I got the film back, I realized that, you know, that just taking pictures of water is not going to do it. It's not, it, it just didn't come out. And then I started to realize you have to really think about when you push the button, which is what I tell my students now. Just because you think something's pretty doesn't mean you need to push the button. Mm. You have have to think about what it is. And were you primarily self-taught? Did you go to school? I know that you worked in the... I, um, I did go to... I didn't... I took courses in photography all throughout high school and college. I went to Georgetown and I majored in English literature and Georgetown had no photography. But they did have a consortium with five other universities in Washington. So I took courses at um, the Corcoran School of Art and at um, George Washington University. Um, And then when I moved to New York, I took courses at the School of Visual Arts, at the New School, at ICT. I kind of took them as I needed them. When I needed to learn about 
architectural photography. I took a course at School of Visual Arts with an architectural photographer, and then I became his assistant. And then when I had my own jobs, I used to call him and ask him questions about, oh, what do I do? I've got fluorescent light and tungsten light and daylight. What kind of filters do I use? Little did I know that with digital, we wouldn't have to worry about any of that. Mm-hmm. Well, you you have a diversity of work, and but a good uh, amount of your of your careers as a professional photographer was as a photojournalist. How did you come to begin that kind of work, and what opportunities did that provide you as a result of being a photographer? Well, I didn't ever really, to tell you the truth, make very much money doing journalism. So I did other jobs when I lived in New York. I did a lot of PR work. Um, I did covered parties, and I did weddings, and I still do. Um, and then I was more interested in doing photojournalism, but I really couldn't figure out a way to do that and stay alive. Um, so I financed a lot of my, I went to Haiti, um, and then I, I went to different places in the world and a lot of the, and Nicaragua, central, different places in Central America and so on. And, um, I have really photographed a lot of interesting things, um, as a result of having gone to those places, but I kind of initiated it myself. I mean, I didn't have magazines clamoring to send me to dangerous places. Hmm. Well, that's that's a a big part of not only the photographic world then, but now is is the whole idea of self-assignment and and personal projects. I think it must even be harder now because everybody's competing with you with cell phones. I would imagine it's harder for a young photojournalist now than it was even back in the 80s when I was doing it. What did you find that uh, appealed to you about um, the travels? Because I know you photograph a, a lot of a lot of people, but what was it about um, people or communities or, or, or cultures that really kind of appealed to you and wanted you to turn the lens towards them? Um, I would say that what's interesting to me is always the same thing. I'm always interested in light, and I'm always interested in people's faces. Um, I mean, my first pictures were actually of my grandmother. Um, And uh, I would say what interested me was the life in her face, and I think the same thing was true even when I was in in Africa or Haiti or any other place in the world. I'm always looking for the kind of personal element, and I'd say most of the interesting pictures I've taken are of people I know. I mean, I have pictures of famous people too, but they're not as interesting to me as the pictures of people that I know. It's. I look at you know the diversity of people photographs that you've had, and you've got some amazing photographs that you've that you've created while you were sort of traveling abroad. What were some of the challenges that you faced in terms of being able to create those images? Because a lot of people who may not be photojournalists may aspire to create those kind of images, but you know there there are issues of you know approaching people, accessibility. How did you sort of negotiate those challenges in order to make those? You know, well, you mean pictures pictures of famous people, you mean, or just pictures of people um, on the street? The the latter, the latter. The... 
Well, that's always tricky. I mean, I'm not, I'm a little bit, uh, truthfully, I'm a little bit shy about photographing strangers. I don't really like it. And I'm looking right now at my website as we're talking. There's not really very many pictures of strangers. Almost, I mean, most of the people that I photographed were people that I had already met and gotten their permission or they or it's a situation where they're it's a public situation where the, the people know they're being photographed i am not that good about just kind of taking pictures of people on the street um randomly mm. i'm i'm just i mean it's it's hard it's tricky for me so i would say that when i'm looking as again, as I'm looking at my website, almost all of the pictures with people in them are people that I know or they're famous people who knew they were being photographed. Well, so, you know, when, when Nelson Mandela came out of prison, he knew he was being photographed, you know, by, by lots of photographers. I happened to be lucky enough to photograph him in his garden the day he came home um, to his house in Soweto. So he knew I was there, and there were other photographers there as well. But um, I wasn't shy in that situation because it was it was an uh, he, he knew what was happening. Mm. Well, some of the more intriguing images that you have on your site are under the category summer lawns. I mean, mm -hmm. I think some of those images are, are of your family. And I yes, think, uh, a lot of them are. They're beautiful, amazingly beautiful photographs, not only because of just um, the, the, the content. You have some beautiful children, but your sensitivity in terms of light and color and shadow is is amazing. I, oh, thank you. T tell me about creating those images and the choice to turn the camera on your own family to create some of the images, because that can be kind of tricky, even for... As someone who's a photographer. So what, what was that? I know, like and, now, and now they're getting older. They really don't like it anymore. <laughs> um, no. Um, well, here's the thing. There's two things, and I'm sort of saying this because I teach students, and I, I do a workshop called Family Storytelling at the main photo workshop, and Olympus sponsors me, and a lot of the pictures that I do with um, Olympus and everything are, are these kinds of personal pictures and in fact that title Summer Lawns was um, Dirk Halstead who has the digitaljournalist.org asked me to put together a portfolio after he saw me presenting my work at PMA at, I was at the Olympus booth showing pictures um, but the thing is when you're photographing your own house you know when the light is going to be nice so you have an advantage it's not like just going to a new place a new country you know that at four o'clock the sunlight's going to hit the wall in a certain way and you also know um you're sensitive to when the light is hitting a person um and usually if it's your own child you have the luxury of asking them to just stop one second please just stay there one second <laughs> Um, I wouldn't probably do that if it were strangers. I mean, I might, but, but it's, I feel more, I have more emotion involved, invested because it's my own family. And I'm, as you see, I'm, I'm all those pictures. I'm very, very interested 
by the light. Mm. But these pictures that that I have on my website called Summerlawns, they're not all my own children. A lot of them are friends or children of friends or, um, you know, people that I know. You know, I really love these 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 images because one, there's there's a, a wonderful feeling a feeling of intimacy that exists within those photographs. But it, it's and and like I said, that awareness of, of of light and and all the things that make a um, a good a good photograph. And I think a lot of people would aspire to take these kind of images of of their own family. But I think one of the obstacles is, and you kind of hint at that, is is that sort of, you know, little game you got to play with your subjects, particularly when they're your own family. Mm-hmm. Um, so, th- especially as they get older and, they, and they've had the camera turned at them so much. So, how do you, how do you, how do you contend with that? What sort of negotiation do you have to do with your own family? Well, you, can bri- you can bribe them. You can um, <laughs> offer them, offer them great rewards. <laughs> no, no. Re- I mean, I think my kids, my kids really, they've grown up with. Uh, with every one of my kids has their own camera. I've got a million cameras. Um, my kids are now using these little Olympus shatterproof, uh, shockproof um, cameras, which are fantastic. So they know they can drop them or throw them in the water or whatever. And I've got four or five. Um, cameras. I always have a camera in the front seat of my car. I almost always carry this. Um, e- I used to carry the E3. Now there's this new E30, which has all these different filters. And I've always got some camera with me. So in my own case, I think ki- my kids are used to it. If I were talking to somebody who's maybe more of an amateur, I would say um, the more they get used to it, the less self-conscious they are, and the less self-conscious they are, the better pictures you have. I mean, what mm-hmm. you don't want is a picture of your kid just, you know, making that grinning camera face. Yeah. Well, it's often those 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 quiet moments, you know, mm-hmm. that often provide the best opportunities. I mean, you have that image of, I think, I don't know if it's your son sitting in a chair, and there's another kid, you can see a shadow of him coming across yeah, the wall those are the, those are my two um boys and that's one of those pictures that it was really i mean I, I even though i know the light is nice in that particular spot i um it just was a moment and if i had turned my head i would have lost it hmm. it was really just uh, snap snap and um that was the first that was the E1, and I was just trying out the camera. I'd only had it for about a week, and I didn't know about raw files. So it's actually, I've only got it on a JPEG. Mm-hmm. But it blows up. I mean, I have it hanging right in my office at um, what, 22 by 28, and it looks good. Yeah. You know, it, Jay Maisel talks about, you know, the gesture, you know, about light, color, and gesture. And, and, and your images um, are really big on that that small gesture that completely trans can transform um, a, a photograph, and and it's often those very little things, the way someone holds their their head, how they raise their hand, mm-hmm. how their shoulders may be hunched at a moment. That it isn't it isn't sort of the big emotion sometimes that holds your attention, and right. I think that that sometimes it can be difficult to be not only aware of it but to be ready for right. it, right? I think 
Yes, you always have to be ready. I mean, I really think you always, always have to be... I mean, well, I don't know if you, what you have to be. Uh, I personally don't have any choice. I mean, it's just my nature to always be looking for that. Um, I once, uh, when I was showing my work, I had someone raise their hand and ask me what they should take pictures of, and I and I was a little shocked. And I said, well, you don't have to take pictures of anything. No one's forcing you to. <laughs> it's, it's like, don't worry about it. If you have to ask, don't bother taking the picture. I mean, for me, it's not a choice. I don't really, it's just, it's, it's so instinctive and so much part of who I am that I don't go anywhere without a camera. It's, and I feel really... Um, just naked and wrong if I don't have a camera with me. Mm-hmm. You were talking... You know, go ahead, no, I'm sorry. sorry. No, I was at a baseball game yesterday and I left my camera in the car and something happened with one of the children at the baseball game that was really quite... It was great and, and, and I missed it and I had to run back to my car and by the time I came back that particular kid was gone and you know, so on, and I thought, oh, just another, ch- another example of why you shouldn't leave your camera in the car. <laughs> the um, you do some architectural work in mm-hmm. which you know you don't have the benefit of people, but that whole idea of that play of light and shadow and all that in color uh, plays as much of a role in those images as as it does in your people work. What what is the what is the appeal of architecture uh, to you? Well, as a I photo, I do a lot of I do books on classical architecture, and actually I don't have enough of it on my website. The problem was that it was mostly shot in four by five, and I got lazy about scanning. Mm. So there's really I've done four or five books about classical buildings in America, and I'm actually working on another one right now, which I'm going to shoot with the Olympus instead of four by five. And I've learned all kinds of tricks in Photoshop where I can work with images and without having the benefit of a shift, and, you know, tilt shift. I can do it all in Photoshop, and I think it'll go a lot faster. But the appeal is um, symmetry and light, and I'm very interested in working with available light. Um, and as I said, when I first started doing this um, and I worked in these enormous buildings like the Library of Congress in that reading room. There's a shot of it on my website, the main reading room, which is a circular building under the dome. Um, there's tungsten light, there's cool white fluorescent, warm white fluorescent, and there's daylight. And it's really a nightmare to shoot it with film. If you shoot it digitally, you can kind of um, correct for all of those light problems. But I really like to work with available light. And what other advantages have you found shooting digitally, particularly this kind of architectural work that wasn't afforded you when you were using film and 4 by 5 Well, um, it's really nice to not have to load those darn holders. <laughs> um, but then, then we got quick loads, so then that problem got you know thrown out the window. I'm missing Polaroid. 
Um, but with digital, you don't need Polaroid. You take a shot and you look at it on the back of your camera and you zoom in on it to make sure you're in focus. All the things that I was doing with a loop on the back of a camera with the image upside down and my eyes aren't that great anymore anyway, um, it was just getting to be a big pain in the neck. Um, so digital is a lot easier. And then the other thing, and I don't want to you know, do too much of a big ad for Olympus, but I'm telling you that that retractable back helps me a lot. You can just flip out the live view screen. So when I have the camera at waist level, um, instead of having to crouch down and look through the viewfinder, I've got the screen right there I can look at. And it helps me uh, line up the lines better and everything. It's just really so much faster and mm. easier. Yeah, I think... You're big on on storytelling, whether it's a story of a of a place or an event or people. When when you teach your workshops, what do you what do you um, share in terms of having planning, you know, pre planning or having sort of a cohesive idea of what the story is, even before you make that that first image. Well, I mean, I think if you if you for what I tell families, let's, a lot of times I think a fun thing for a family to do on vacation is make a little book of the vacation. I always say things like make sure you do some establishing shots, you know, the airplane or packing the bags or the kids sitting on the suitcases when you're waiting to leave. So you want to start. You want to tell a story from the beginning. Which when I do a wedding, I like to tell the whole story. I like to think of it as a story and not think of it as a um, as a commercial wedding job, I'd like to do it photojournalistically, and I like to show the bride getting ready and and telling it sequential. You know, and this happened, and then this happens, and you know, tell the whole story of the day, um, which is the same thing when I teach the workshop. But to try to to think of it as a chronological thing and even don't avoid things that you think are not pictures. You know, your kids sleeping could be a good picture. Um, there's all kinds of uh, close-ups of your footprints in the sand. I mean, it can be corny, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, pictures of sunsets are not always cliches. You, I always tell people that every you can break any rule and still make a great picture. I mean, for years you've heard never to shoot into the sunlight. Well, that's not true, and it's not true that you have to divide your picture into thirds. And, you know, there, there, these rules of composition and, and backlighting and all these things aren't always true. You can break any rule and make a great picture. And I have examples of uh, uh, other people's work um, that I show when I talk about breaking rules. Yeah, there's an image that you have on your wedding portfolio site. Mm -hmm. I think it's in your reception, and you have these uh, um, girls that are behind a table, the two girls in the Oh, yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Mm -hmm. I love that shot. And, Thank and you. What I love about that photograph, it just catches this unguarded moment. I mean, the light's wonderful. But it's that unguarded moment. It's one of those moments that is invisible to almost everyone, and they and they and they just walk by it. But you capture this photograph that tells the story of a of a moment and these people, and you get a sense of them beyond the faces beyond the faces that would typically that they would typically present to the camera. Right. How Nobody. 
nobody's posing and I love I'm looking at that picture now I really I love this picture too and um, I love the little statue leaning against the tree in the back and just some little little elements and I'm probably to tell you the truth um, Abarianex I don't think I knew at the moment when I pushed the button that all those elements were in there I'm not sure when we look through the viewfinder that we always know exactly that we're going to love the picture or not. I mean, I don't know. You you take pictures, right? Oh yeah. Well, so you know, I mean, we don't. Oh, sometimes we we fall in love with the picture after we see it, um, not necessarily when we're pushing the button. Yeah, because there's something there's something in, instinctual telling you make the photograph. Mm-hmm. And I think you allow us to sort of touch on that whole idea of not allowing the editor to come in while you're making pictures. You mm-hmm. just have to make the photographs and, and critique it later because I think a mistake some people make is that they'll go, oh, there isn't a picture here, and they won't make the photograph, not realizing that there was a moment that was there. And I think for me particularly, I'm very, I'm really fussy about straight lines and Stuff because of my my background in classical architecture and a picture like this that I wasn't paying any attention to any of those things you know there's all kinds of skewy lines in it and and you know heads butting into other heads and there's nothing symmetrical really but I still love it mm. when you're covering an event like this like like a wedding there are a lot of moments like like this how do you sort of get yourself set to not you know, just create, you know, the typical images that everyone is, is expecting from from a wedding, but also being I, acquainted. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Also what? And also being open to those other events like this one, those quiet moments that people are, are experiencing but are not thinking about visually. Um. You know, I've been doing it for so long. <laughs> Just, I mean, this is what I, for some reason, I never thought I would. I would think that wedding photography was interesting, but to me, it's just as interesting. As, it's a it's a great time to make pictures. Um, you know, it, it's all you can always find interesting moments at weddings, and um, I don't know. I just I've just um, it's instinctive. Um, but I do, you know, I do the traditional pictures that people expect also. I mean, I do both. Mm-hmm. I just um, think it's, I think it's interesting. But I, tell, but I tell the bride and groom, you know, if that's what they want, then not, don't hire me. I mean, if you just want everybody posing and smiling at the camera, then there's plenty of other people that can do that. Um, and I think by the time a bride and groom get to me, they already are the right. It's already the right fit. Mm-hmm. I've never. I've no one's been disappointed because they know what I do. I mean, and I tell them that that's that's what they're paying me for. If they want to get the posed pictures of everyone lined up with the uh, bride and groom and the bridesmaids and all that, I said I'm happy to do it. But you're kind of wasting your money to hire me for that. Yeah. I think when you were talking about your, your children, there's a certain familiarity that exists between you and them that allows you to make, you know, very beautiful and intimate photographs. How important is your rapport with your, your subjects, even if you've only known them for a short time, play in you being able to make the kind of photographs that you do? Well, 
Oh, it's it's everything. That's a great question. It's to- I mean, I promise you, I am best friends with the bride and groom for the for the day of their wedding. And usually, we've had two or three meetings before I get to know them. And if we don't like each other, we wouldn't end up working together. So you know, usually. I mean, every time I get a letter from a bride, they always thank me for being unobtrusive and they thank me for being easy to work with and so on. And what happens is I just am 100% in the moment. I get completely involved with with the bride and groom and their family and I know who everybody is and I know if there are any family feuds and, you know, I, I just try to figure all of that out immediately so that I can be sensitive to what's hap- going to happen throughout the day. Mm. It, it's really important. I mean, that's the most important thing at a wedding. And in any job, it's important. It's important when I'm photographing somebody's house. I mean, you really have to develop a relationship with the client, with the person. And if you have a, a bad time with the client, then I don't know about other photographers, but if I have a bad time with the client, then I don't even know how good the job is that I do. Yeah. And you're ready to say, you know, no, if you don't think it's going to be a, a good fit, I would assume, then. Uh, I don't think I... I think I have turned down a couple of jobs if I didn't like the client, but usually I say yes and then uh, do my best. But mm-hmm. uh, I'm not really in the position where I can say no to a lot of things. Yeah, times are real difficult for everybody. In the I mean, I don't, know, <laughs> I don't know about the rest of my well, rest of my colleagues, but I pretty much say yes mm-hmm. to most most jobs that come up. How has shooting digitally um, kind of changed your approach, if at all, in terms of how you're making images? I mean, you talked about earlier about having that immediate feedback of the LCD. Um, but in terms of what you're able to do with your images, particularly in, in, in post, have you found that that's opened up some opportunities in terms of your uh, of your work that you might not have had before when you were relegated to, to a dark room or a lab? I think it's really to change my life. Hasn't it yours? I mean, I think every in every way. I mean, I don't go in... The, I haven't been in the dark room... I had stopped going in the dark room years ago when I started having children. So I was—I have a lab in New York that was doing all of my prints and developing for me. Um, and they called me about two years after I went digital and said, where have you been? I said, hey, get with the program. <laughs> <laughs> hey, guys, I'm sorry, nothing personal, but I don't need you anymore. Um, I, I mean, I feel badly because a lot of labs have gone out of business. Um, but I now have so much more control. And I'm not really big on doing a lot of post-production. I kind of just like to... But you do, you have so much um, flexibility if your picture's a little bit underexposed. You know, I used to really have a heck of a time in the dark room if it was underexposed. And, you know, you try to push the film if you knew you had underexposed it. But even that never looked that great. Um, we, I feel like we have at least two stops more leeway on either side with digital. Mm. And, and um, I, I've been, you know, returning to um, shooting shooting film, and, and I still continue to 
shoot digitally and edit, but I have such a great appreciation that I had that experience in the lab to begin with because that mm-hmm. is informing so much of how I use the digital tools today. And I, exactly. I, I, I mean, you're probably dodging and burning exactly the way you would in the darkroom, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, I just, I have to say, I did just get a um, film camera as payment for a job, um, and I'm really excited. I've never had one. It's the Mamiya 7. Oh, God, you're going to love that, yeah. I know, and I'm totally, I think it's like, the. I've been thinking for years, this is the only film camera I'd want to use, and I still use my Leica sometimes, I have an old M4, but um, I don't know who's going to do my film, because I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> even, I'm not getting in the dark room again. Well, it's a wonderful thing. The wonderful thing about it is that you get the stuff, you know, processed, and then you'll be able to scan it. That's what I've been doing. You know, it's right. putting you know triax or color negative film in there and and putting it in a scanner and then bringing it into the computer. But even then, you, the the quality of you know the grain, the color, all of a sudden you you realize what you've been missing from shooting digital this whole time. Yep. I mean, digital is wonderful, but I think I that film still plays a role in, in what we're I, Yes, I agree. I mean, I just did finish doing a book where I shot 4 by 5 film. But I have to say, I also I had the Olympus with me because um, the, the... And this is really, again, I'm not trying to do an ad, but I promise you, I've done color. I, I've used other... I've used the other cameras, and this the auto white balance on the Olympus, the E3 is spot on. I never get the colors wrong. So I, for every 4 by 5 shot that I did, I made a reference with my E1, and when I got the negatives back, you know, the, I'm sorry, the transparencies back, and put them on the light box, I checked them against my digital files to make sure that the color was somewhere in the neighborhood of correct. Mm-hmm. You know, when you really have to be precise like that, in this case I was photographing artworks in big public buildings so there was mixture of light and when you have to be correct about the color of the paint the paintings um, digital is much better than film I mean the film would either go too warm or it would go too cool you know I mean because you don't have that much of a range of color temperature when you're shooting film yeah yeah, when I talk to photographers, oftentimes I I realize recently that I'm not oftentimes talking to them about uh, printing and the actual printing of their photographs. Because especially when you're dealing with business clients, you're oftentimes just sending stuff electronically, and that mm-hmm. whole dialogue in terms of the print sometimes we forget to talk about it. So I'm, I want to ask you how what oh, okay. role does the print play in in your work, particularly your your personal work. Well, my, it plays a big role in my personal work. My business work, it really doesn't pay m- much of a role. Most of the times I deliver to the client is a, as a DVD, um, and I rarely do prints for clients. Um, but for my personal work, I now have this Epson 3800, and I love that I can print big. I mean, it's costing me a fortune in ink, but I just love to be able to make these big prints. Um, and I'd like to actually print them even bigger. I'd like to start working on stuff that's like, you know, 30 by 40 or 28 by 36, that size. Um, right now I'm making, I guess, 22 by 28 is the largest size I can do. Mm. 
Um, but I really like it, and I, I think I'm a pretty good printer. I think I'm doing the same stuff when, I mean, I'm just as fussy now as I was in the dark room. I remember I, I was, the reason I stopped printing in the dark room is because I could spend an entire day to make one print, and I couldn't, I realized that I was never going to get anywhere if I was doing that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd, I'd be in the dark room the whole day, and I wouldn't be happy with the print, and you know, you can just go and go and go, and nobody else in the world's going to really notice the difference. Yeah, and you can you know, spend a whole day, think it's perfect, and then the next morning you look at it and you go, Ew. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But, um, no, I love, I love this, uh, I love printing, and I print on this really good, um, either the Epson velvet paper or the Hannah Mule, um, whatever that really heavy yeah. photo rag is. But I think it's something, you know, because for me, when I have the chance to actually hold a print of a photograph, mm-hmm. the experience of just having that tactile feeling of holding something you've created in your hands rather than just looking it on the computer, I think it's, they can't, they can't, there isn't enough that can be said about, about that. There's something about that tangibility that makes the whole process of making an image remarkable. I agree, and I think it's what I like is the way the paper just drinks up the ink. You know, it's just it's, it's for me with the digital prints, even if they're made from a negative, I feel like they're much richer even than than silver gelatin. Um, I get the feeling that the print is like li- you know that it's living in the paper more than I did with silver gelatin. Mm. Well, the last question I always ask is that I ask each photographer to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone from the past to the current, someone who influenced you, or, or someone who just recently discovered. So who would that one person be oh, for you? Oh, my gosh. I wish I, knew, I wish I knew you were going to ask me this question. Let me think, because there's so many people I've recently discovered. Um you know, I photographed the Obama inauguration, and somebody pointed me to this young woman whose name I can't remember. You know, she did a book about she she covered the Obama campaign, and I think her name her name is Scout. Do you know who I mean? No, no, but I can see if I can figure it. Her name yeah. is Scout, and it's Tamarkian or Tajarkian or something. It's the most you have to see her book. It's oh great. yeah, I found here uh, Scout to. F- to fun- it's, it's, it's an IAN name. Yeah, it's T U F A N K G I A N. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Something like that. It's a, yeah. Anyway, her work is spectacular, and she's young. And then let me think who else I want to because I don't know her, but I'd rather recommend somebody that I actually know who's interesting. Um, oh gosh, I I don't know. I, there's so many photographers. Oh, you know who I love is David Hilliard. Oh, you know, okay. You know who he is? I'm familiar with his work, yeah. I've never met him, but I te- when I teach my class, I like to show my students. I never really show my... I mean, I show my own work, but I have a whole list of other photographers who do very sort of intimate family pictures. You know, I show pictures of Tina Barney, and I show Lee Friedlander, and I show... Um, uh, uh, all kinds of photographers, um, Sally Mann, um, and this David Hilliard I just discovered about a year ago, and I started to show his work. 
I made a little slideshow of famous photographers. Um, oh, Edouard Boubat, I love his work. Mm. But I show intimate pictures taken by famous photographers. I only show pictures that my students themselves could have taken. Yes. So nobody that's doing anything tricky. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, it's all pretty straightforward, candid, intimate um, kinds of portraits that I show. Well, it's a wonderful suggestion. I look forward to, to uh, passing it on to the listeners. Well, thank all you right. so much, Anne. It's, it's been oh, a well, real pleasure. Oh, thank you. Well, maybe I'll meet you one day. Thanks again for joining me. If you have any comments or suggestions, please email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com or post a message on the blog at thecandidframe.com or the fan page on facebook.com. Until next time, this is Ibarrio Nexparello, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at Photocast Network. Photocastnetwork.com